0: This presentation is from Design Research 2020, day two. Rowan, thank you and, and welcome. Right. Well, nice. thanks so much, Steve. I just
1: want to say thanks for that really kind intro and also like thanks for uh, raising the issue of being kind to ourselves and having plans in place because I think it's something that we kind of uh, all don't put in place when we first start research, but it's uh, definitely important and something that you, you unfortunately learn through experience. And so if you can shortcut that experience and start doing it early or even from today, it makes just such a a huge difference to your practice in the sessions that you're in. So thanks, mate. Okay, so welcome. My name's Rowan. Today, I'm going to talk to you about the Research Participant Survival Guide. Now, this is something that uh, I have been working on, and my partner Renee Company has also been working on. Uh, I just want to start the session by acknowledging the uh, Wur- Wurundjeri, the Wururundjeri, and the Boonurund people of the Kulin Nation uh, as the traditional custodians of the land that I, I live and work on. Uh, and as researchers uh, I think it's important for us to know the places that we conduct research uh, and to also uh, work with the indigenous groups uh, and people within our area to help them in in their ongoing struggle in this country so I'll hope that you take that into your practice uh, and uh, do an acknowledgement of country whenever you're you're speaking or running workshops so the research participant survival guide um, now, this is something that I, I've been kicking around for for a couple of years. Uh, I, I think over over the amount of sessions that you do as a researcher, uh, oftentimes you are like running into what seems like similar people over and over again, uh, and just naturally, what we tend to do is um develop our own strategies and our own practice in dealing with those people and most of the time we actually just keep that to ourselves Um, and it's through uh, as one of the speakers said yesterday through this this um this skill uh, of of doing that we kind of learn and we put these things in into practice Uh, and then when another person or another researcher or a new person comes into your practice, that's when you begin to share those strategies with them. And it usually happens after they've gone into a a research environment and they've had a particular uh, situation happen uh, that they struggle with, mostly struggle with, uh, that you get to have these conversations about Who are the different people that we're actually going to talk to? What are they like? And what do we do when we run into those difficult situations for us as facilitators in the room? Now a little bit about myself. So I'm I'm a UX researcher. I currently work at Pager, which is a HR tech company based in Melbourne. Uh, Previously, I worked at REA Group. um, And I also run an event called UX Gatherings with my partner Renee Comedy. Uh, so you may, you may have been to one of our events. Uh, we also put on the UX mega meetups as well. Uh, so very big community focus, constantly talking to people, constantly talking to people at various stages of their career, um, and hearing the stories about what they're going through in their practice at a moment in time. Um, and, and as well as that, I also do a bit of teaching. So, uh, I work with RMIT online, I've worked with Academy XI, GA, um, General Assembly, uh, and and again, just in constant conversation with people about their design practice, their research practice, and specifically like their interviewing skills. Um, What I'm gonna talk about today is that uh, with developing your research practice and with developing your interviewing, um, your interviewing style, your facilitation style, uh, the amount of work that goes into before the session and the amount of work that goes into after the session is actually too big for us to talk about in this particular talk. Uh, I think that there are, there are definitely strategies and practices that you can put in place to make sure that your interview runs as smoothly as it can. Uh, but as we heard from, uh, Alexandra and Karina yesterday, um, if you plan for things to go exactly one way, it will go the absolute opposite way when you're actually in a session. And so what I'm going to be focusing on today and in the research participant survival guide is what to do during a session. And the way that we're going to do that is we're going to look at what are some of the behaviors that you can spot from a participant that kind of roughly puts them into an archetype of a participant. how are you likely to experience that? Mostly like how I've experienced that or how other people I've spoken to have experienced that session. Uh, and then what are the strategies that you can put in place in the moment to try and still get the most out of the interview? Because as researchers, we, we are very, very um, worried that we need to get every drop of insight out of every single conversation that we have to make sure that our time is the most valuable we and we can facilitate the rest of the design process or the rest of the organization's learning. Uh, and, and I know that that puts a lot of pressure on us and I've spoken to a lot of people who have this like boulder that they carry on their back that means like every single interview needs to go 100% perfect and I need to get the exact insight out of it every single time I do it, uh, which is unachievable uh, and it's also just not the nature of not the nature of people we're dealing with people they're very uh, like they're themselves and you don't know that until they sit down uh, and as Steve was saying before when you get into a room and when you start a conversation you don't really know where that conversation is going to go which is thrilling as a researcher I find it thrilling as a researcher uh, but it also kind of leads us to situations that we may not have encountered so we're going to focus on during the interview during this talk, and so it's not just me talking about my experiences. Uh, how I built this talk was I went out, uh, I had all of my experiences. I had a lot of conversations when I worked with uh, Jess Vitez at REA about the type of people that we were running into constantly, uh, and that started the foundation of what we're going to talk about today. Uh, I also went out and I, I put a survey out. Um, one of the things I love about our community is that we literally cannot get enough of research. That if someone says, Hey, do you want to do some research? Everyone's like, yes, I want to do some research and then probably come back and say, do you want to do some research for me? So I put a survey out there. Uh, I got 35 responses from the survey kind of detailing some of the experiences and difficulties that they had, that people had in sessions and some of the strategies that they've, developed uh, along the way. Uh, and I did seven in-depth interviews with, uh, with some of the people who responded to that survey just to flesh out some of the experiences that they've had and, and build out some of the archetypes that you're going to see along the next slides. One of the interesting things that I found is that within within that block of, of, of survey people, um, about half of them were researchers of varying levels, all the way up to like the team lead of a research team. Uh, and the other half were, were designers, so um, people who had conducted a lot of interviews but were primarily designers. Uh, and then we had a few consultants and, and kind of adjacent roles that answered that survey. Um, we also had like quite a good range of experience, so probably about a third of the experience sat in the one to four years of practice, um, another third was in the like five to 10. And then the, the final third was like 10 plus years of practice as a researcher or conducting research. Uh, and one of the interesting things that, that I, I found when I asked, like, how many interviews do you do in, in the last 12 months? Um, there was, uh, again, about a third of people who had uh, run uh, like under 50 one on one interviews with people over the last 12 months. Uh, a third of people who had done 50 to 100 interviews uh, and just less than a third of people who had done 100 plus interviews in the last 12 months Uh, and it was really interesting to see like just how many different people you would probably speak to in the space of 12 months and that's only people that you're literally conducting research with that doesn't include all the designers the stakeholders uh, and all the other team members that you're speaking with so when I started looking at these numbers I was like oh my god like we're definitely going to be running in to similar people over and over again as we conduct our research and there's 100% like these practices that we put in place to manage different types of people Uh, and what I was really thankful of is uh, like all of the contributors to this project so this is this is a group of people uh, that the the project was based around so these are the experiences that we've 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 heard and uh, put into the archetypes that you'll you'll hear today, um, and uh, just a, an amazing thank you to every single one of you because um, again, like the 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 openness and willingness to share these experiences, uh, I saw immediate value, like just in my own practice talking talking to these people and reading their experiences. Um, but uh, I'm really excited for what other people do with the the things that I'm going to share today. Uh, And and if there are interesting things, please post in the chat about it, have discussions. If you find an archetype that you're like, oh my god, yes, all the time, uh, just definitely post how your emotional response to hearing that that person exists uh, in the chat so that everyone else can nod in furious agreement with you. Uh, and and also I just want to thank there are lots of people that didn't want to be want to be mentioned as contributors but uh, I know who you are and thank you so much so I really appreciate all the work all right I'm going to take some water Mm. all right so let's meet the archetypes so here are the the archetypes uh today I'm going to be going through seven of the archetypes that I created from the research um I have probably about seven more that, uh, that I could have gone through, but uh, I, I think I'll leave them for another day and we can, we can talk about the ones that I've missed after this session because i really love to hear your input after you've heard it. Um, and so the first one I want to talk about is the waffler. Now, if you've met me, you know that I am 100% the waffler. Uh, and the way that you can spot a waffler when they walk into your interview room is that they are extremely enthusiastic. They fill the room and they're very excited to be there. Uh, Sometimes you can spot them with a little bit of nervous energy in the waiting room as as they're coming in. Uh, They might already be on a a tangent or a thread as you're walking into the research room before you've been able to get them to sign any of the consent confidentiality forms and before you've got the camera rolling. Uh, And as you walk in the room, your note taker looks up and suddenly starts having to type Uh, like out of control. Um, There are also people that want to talk about the whole service. They're not just interested in answering the question that you have for them. They're interested in telling you about every minute detail that they have gone through in the use of your product or service. Uh, And it it can be extremely difficult to get them to focus in on the question that you actually asked. Whereas they want to talk about all of the granular details and all of the all of the way that they were feeling, which is which is both a blessing and a curse when you're in the room. Um, often they'll talk in loops as well. So, so a waffler will get on get on a tangent and loop around uh, and always kind of find a way to get back to what they were talking about beforehand, even when you've tried to move the conversation on. Uh, so you'll you'll hear like repeating patterns. Of, uh, of, of content coming from them. Uh, and they'll talk about their, their, mo- their most and least favorite parts of the experience, uh, again, in excruciating detail. Uh, and so what happens when you have a waffler in a session as a facilitator, is that uh, you generally start off super excited because you're like, I finally have a participant that wants to talk to me about everything that I want to talk about. Um, and then as you open the question and they start talking, you start getting engaged and you focus in, you've got your active listening on, uh, and there's so many good points. And it just be good point, good point, good point, good point, you're like, oh, I'll have to remember these for later. And then suddenly what, what starts to happen is that you begin to be overwhelmed with the amount of information that they're giving to you. Uh, and, and it becomes very difficult for you to remember all of the threads that you want to follow up. Uh, eventually getting to the point where you start to take yourself out of the conversation because you're trying to remember what it is you actually need to talk about uh, and what tangents are the most relevant for you to flow down Uh, and in the extreme cases you will get to a point where um, you will get to a point where you have completely lost your train of thought you don't know where you are in the conversation you don't know what question comes next uh, and you're wondering, like, how did we get here? Like why why are we talking about this? Is this even relevant to the to the study? Um, uh, and it's at that point that you might become very overwhelmed uh, and just look back and realize that you spent twenty five minutes on the first question. Now, this is a type of person that I really struggle with. Um, I really struggle with it because I myself am am an intense waffler and if you get me going on something I will just talk and talk and talk and talk and talk and so when I interact with them I want to listen to every single thing that they're saying because I'm like yeah yeah you're so excited I need this I'm like you let's do this Uh, and then I get overwhelmed and I forget where I'm going Uh, and and I look back and I'm like oh my god what's going on here it wasn't until I I started working with one of my old bosses, Peter Grierson, um, who I saw in his practice, how well he was able to maintain the facilitation and control of conversation to make sure that we were checking off the the things that we needed to talk about in, in our research. Uh, and and Peter, like when I interviewed Peter, I was like, I I've seen you deal with these people. Like, how do you deal with these people? And he's like, it's all about the timing. There's a micro intake of breath when they're on the soliloquy. That's when you take the conversation back. And I remember sitting as a note taker in this session, watching him. I'm like furiously note taking, trying to capture every single word. And then suddenly he was able to insert himself in the conversation in a place that I didn't realize you could insert yourself in a conversation to to take back that control um, and, and and summarize what was going on. Now, that's the waffler, right? So um, I'm, I'm certain this was this was the, the type of person that every single person I spoke to encountered. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm certain everyone has had a little bit of a taste of this, if not in the research session, definitely with your colleagues. Um, and so some of the strategies that can really help you in
0: the moment
1: when you identify that you've lost control of that conversation, that they're going on and on and on, um, are, are, are four like here are four of the key key ones that I think are really really useful. So there's the audible interruption. So when Pete says you wait for that intake of breath in the soliloquy, that's the audio inter- audible interruption. So that's when you go, thank you so much. So they're, they're talking, talking, talking. You're like, oh my god, that was so great. Uh, you've got to be quick. You've got to be focused, uh, and you've got to be you've got to be aware that the conversation has gone past the point that it's become valuable to you. Um, and, and to the session, uh, and you need to you need to look at them for that intake of breath. Now, sometimes that doesn't work, so the audible interruption doesn't work because some people just like talking and they're not looking at you. Uh, so sometimes you use a physical interruption, uh, and that's where you use a gesture to to draw their attention back to you. And that can be as simple as just like moving your hand up and down like this, uh, or even uh, even like shifting in your space, making a sigh. Uh, I would say that's a physical interruption. If you're if you're like sighing and showing to them that it's time to time to wrap up that conversation, um, and physical gestures are really really um, uh, like a really great way at, at again just breaking the conversation flow and bringing the attention back onto you. Uh, one of the physical interruptions that I really like is is getting your note taker to take over. So if uh, at a point you're like I actually have literally no idea where I am. Uh, you can just physically turn to your note taker and say, hey, could you just let me know where we are at the moment? Um, or can you just uh, answer answer this question? Or have we caught this question? Like they're all, they're all a physical and audible interruption to the session so that you break the conversation. Um, and when you do do these breaks, it's really important to validate the waffler um, and direct them back to your topic because it's not their fault that they want to talk about a million things that's you as a facilitator so all of these things are ways that you can facilitate better it's not necessarily the participants fault that this is their natural state of being uh, and you should thank them for their natural state of being because it's very very exciting to get that amount of information from people so validate your waffler get let your note taker know that they can come into the conversation have a physical interruption or have an audio interruption and that is the waffler The second type of person that I'm gonna talk about today is the silent type of person. Now, you know that you're talking to the silent type, uh, when when they walk into the room, they've got very closed off body language. So they might sit down, they might sit down, shrink themselves, cross their their arms and legs. Now, uh, I'm not saying that's a definitive way to notice people, but it is a behavior that you can take note of and, and put back into your mind and say, this is the way that they've entered the room. Let's just take a mental note of that right now. Um, they might kind of look nervous. They might uh, see like shifting, shifting around, uh, not really looking at you in the eye, not looking at your note taker eye, uh, didn't really say hi on the way in. Like those things, uh, like while they, or well, again, may look nervous. We don't know if they're nervous we just know that that's a that's a behavioral sign that maybe you might need to adjust your style of facilitation um, the the biggest way to know that you've got the silent type is that uh, they will give you either instantaneous yes and no responses to all your questions or they will pause say hmm and then give you a yes or no question and that is even applicable to when you have the most open question like tell me a story about yourself no and then what you do is you just sit in silence and it's really uncomfortable uh and then also like another way is that uh, you'll see if you're doing usability testing not not interviews is that they'll complete every single task that you give them uh, and then they'll give you no feedback about how they were feeling what they were doing um, why they did certain actions why they didn't do certain actions what they did notice what they didn't notice I'll just be like, yep, yeah, cool. Um, and, and and this type of person is, is really, really energy consuming is what I would say. Um, this is the kind of interview where you as a facilitator will start to second guess whether or not you should be interviewing people at all. You will sit down. Uh, you will ask them questions, your pre-prepared questions that you definitely know uh, are, are like working and are open questions and are the right type of questions, uh, and and you will just give them to them, get no response, and be like, oh, okay. And this will happen so many times that you'll start to like have this self-doubt wash over you of whether or not the questions you're asking are the right questions, whether or not. Um, it's you as a facilitator or this person isn't, isn't willing to share with you. Um, and it can get really uncomfortable. Uh, and, and you are going to sit there in this discomfort while you're also trying to figure out how you can show the person that you're not uncomfortable with like this, this silence, these one word answers, these closed off responses, um, and that is really draining. Like if you've got people that don't answer questions, multiple interviews, you're just like sat of energy uh, when you come out of those sessions. Um, and you also just like feeling uncomfortable sucks. Like you're gonna you're gonna feel uncomfortable, uh, and it's okay. Like you're gonna feel uncomfortable, and it's okay. Um, and so one of the suggestions that that Jess says is just to let there be more awkward silence to see if they say something. Uh, and, I, and I think that's a, that's a really good point because they're, they're quiet. So one of, one of the ways that you can interact with them is just be more comfortable with silence. And this is, this is something that in the session, when it's quiet, just try and remain silent. So that's don't, don't necessarily interact with them in, anymore. Just sit and stare at them and smile. I like just sit there and go, maybe just a little bit longer than you would with other participants to see if that encourages them to start sharing more information with you. And so other, other ways that you can deal with the silent type is that going off script is probably the, like, uh, uh, it's, it's a great general strategy, but it's really good for people who aren't really responding well to your questions or, or the situation or the room that you're in. So it's, Drop the, drop the sheet of paper that you've got, your own sheet, and, and then just start trying to connect with them and ask them questions uh, that may or may not be related to the, the product or service that you're interviewing them about. Um, it might be something just a, a bit more about them, maybe what they did. Uh, if, if someone hasn't really talked, it's a really good idea to get them to tell you a story about how they got to the session. I think, I like personally, I found that as a great way when someone hasn't really wanted to share any information with me, I start to get them to go into a bit more detail about uh, something really innocuous, like how they got to the session today, um, to start prompting them that this is the kind of conversation that we're gonna have in the session today. Um, another another way is, is change, change the dynamic of the interview to go from a, a questions interview to like uh, encouraging them to do a different different medium or a different different type of method. Um, so one of the one of the things that I actually saw uh, Jackie Chang from REA do was um create a journey map with a start and an end uh and then got the participant to just like label where they were within that within that paper. Um, because they weren't getting the information that they uh, that they expected from from the questions about where are you in your property journey? It, it, that, that's a really weird question, just in general. Um, but when it's written down, like here is a physical journey, just indicate where you are and tell me about what it's like at that stage, was enough to prompt people to really like take themselves out of their head or out of the interview and into something else. So I, I really encourage like going off script and trying something that you may not necessarily have tried previously. Um, One of the things that I do, and it's never encouraged, which is is they they always say never ask closed questions. Uh, But in in my experience with with specific people who just want to respond yes and no, um, I will then take those closed questions to try and establish like a box around the conversation so that I can get, so yes this, no this, yes this, no this, yes this, no this, yes this, no this, and use that to then say, you said that you didn't do this, can you tell me a bit more about it, um, and generally with with a bit more structure around uh, like the questions and, and, and the, I guess like the narrative or the story in a way that they're comfortable sharing, um, encourages them to share a bit more information. Um, It still uh, at points can feel like, like you are dragging it from them as they kick and scream saying, no, I don't want to participate. Um, uh, But I think that's all part of it. Like I I think it's absolutely fine to feel like that, um, but it's not necessarily their fault. And it's you as a facilitator, who should be able to adapt in that situation. Uh, And and again, building rapport, like if if they don't trust you, or if if you feel like they don't trust you or they're not comfortable, proceeding with more questions at that point is just going to make them trust you less or make it even more uncomfortable for them. So just go back to like sharing stories about themselves um, and, and filling in, filling in a bit more about them before you go back into the topic. Um, a, a really good one is, uh, so there's the, um, I think it's from, oh, I can't remember this guy's name from uh, Negotiate Like Your Life Dependent on It. Chris Voss, thank you. Renee. Uh, so Chris Voss, Chris Voss says uh, uh, there's a technique called the verbal mirror, which is that you just use three words, uh, like the last three words or the three most important words that someone said in a sentence. Now, sometimes that's all you're going to get out of these people. So just repeating what they said and, and then adding, can you tell me a bit more about that?" Uh, is a really good way to say, this is the thing that I'm interested in. Tell me more about it uh, and can help move that conversation along uh I, as jess pointed out uh just sit in uncomfortable silence more like it doesn't always work because you you're kind of playing chicken with them because you're like i hope that you are more uncomfortable in this silence and you will share information with me uh then i am as a facilitator not having a conversation with you um that's particularly hard if you've got a note taker that does not like silence as well um if you are working with your like pms uh who uh, like, uh, their personality is, I need things and I it now, uh, sitting in silence, they can do audible size and, and physical behavior that indicates the person that they're wasting their time. So sometimes it doesn't always work, but, uh, it, it is something that can encourage them to speak. Um, and again, invite your note taker to ask questions. They're like a real safe out, right? Like you just, they're there, just use them as a prop in the facilitation. Um, uh, for whatever means. Sometimes it's just when you need a break and you're like, I, I literally cannot think of anything to say and you just pass it over there and you're like, there you go. And that's the silent type. So the next archetype we're going to talk about is the misunderstander. Now, you will spot the misunderstander in a session uh, when they don't actually answer the question that you have asked. They're still answering a question, uh, but it is definitely not the one that you had asked them. Um, And it seems like that they may not grasp the context. So they may be using words that fit within the question that you've asked, but the context of how they're telling you this story is is very far outside of the question that you have actually asked them. Um, And this this is something that becomes apparent uh, probably a few questions in, um, so you may not be able to pick that someone is misunderstanding the questions that you're asking until you've asked a few questions. Uh, and where you are in the conversation is very different from where they are. I, I think Ben had that great example about the the Xerox the Xerox AI that the, the the user and the AI in the machine were having two completely different conversations, and that at some point they realised when it was too late to correct uh, and that's a really great analogy for kind of how it feels in an interview when you're going one way they're going one way and it's only after a few questions you realize that they are not anywhere where you are or need them to be um sometimes this happens like this happens a lot if you're talking to people who have uh like english is another language uh it's not their first first language specifically in australia because that's the only context that i've i've interviewed people um but the the difference in in how they're interpreting your questions and how they're interpreting your language um, is is coming back uh, a little bit disjointed or a little bit left left of where you wanted it to be. Um, And and you'll find this repeating, uh, like not being able to focus on the actual question that you've asked them and and going off on on a tangent that's unrelated um, or or not even... even, um, uh, not even addressing the question that that you've asked. Um, one of one of the things that you also um, <clears throat> might notice is that they agree with everything that you say. So you'll pose a question, and they'll say yes, because their natural instinct is like, I'm here. I want to make sure that your session goes well because you're paying me to be here. So when you say something, I'm, I'm going to agree with you. Uh, and and if if you're not aware that this is what they're doing. You'll get to this point where you've got this dissonance between what they're saying and what you're asking, and that it conflicts with another question that you've asked. Um, so, a really easy way to go go about that is to go over the screener questions again, and, and you get the like, this is a yes, this is a no, this is a yes, this is a no, um, uh, and then uh, then expanding on it, uh, like rather rather than wait until uh, you get. Three quarters of the way through the session, and you've just realised that oh my god, they don't actually have anything. Anything. Anything that I've asked is not is not correct. Um, sometimes people are a bit more um, obvious in the, in the way that they show you that they've misunderstood the question by presenting like a blank expression or a scrunched up face. Like this is a really confusing question. I don't know why you've asked this of me, uh, which is a little bit easier to understand. Uh, but as as I've learned, like some people just have like a resting like. judgment face so like they might just their thinking face might just be like this this expression that's coming coming at you Uh, so it can be easy to misinterpret Uh, and and what i would suggest is that when you're spotting these people it's about like collectively looking at all of the signs and then judging whether or not you think you've got someone who fits into this category Um, and 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 lastly like they misinterpret the the words that you use Um, And so you get to this point like in the interview where like you'll realize that you're not talking about the same thing. And and there's a couple ways that you may respond in this situation. Sometimes you yourself might be confused about like, how did I get here? Um, uh, and question whether or not the questions you're asking were the right questions, whether they were really confusing, uh, whether or not they, um, they were actually tailored to the audience that you wanted to hear from Um, you might get defensive you you might start getting frustrated because you're seeing like this dissonance between the answers and think uh i can't believe that someone has come into this room and is not giving me the answers that i need i can't believe that these two things are different Um, so you might be defensive you might be angry you might be frustrated um, you might uh, you might like if it's really bad you might get defeated you might just let a big sigh out and go well this has been a complete waste of my time um, and so there are a lot of a lot of ways that you might react in this situation uh, and and with everything uh, I'm, I I think you've probably been in this this like in this situation with a lot of people in your life uh, and it and it's about like pausing and readjusting and, and again knowing that that this person hasn't come in here to trick you. Uh, they are a human being, you are a human being trying to communicate. And there is some broken part of the communication process where you're not getting each other. Um, and that's why it's really important for you to like, choose kindness in that situation. To always think, uh, like with this person, like, um, unless it's very, I'll go into that. Later, but choose kindness, choose kindness in your approach to, to reevaluating your questions. Um, and and as Amir says here, like the the best thing to do is actually to put your research goals on hold and try and readjust to the mental model of the participant and start again. So this is a, like a really good practice in, in, in being mindful in your facilitation practice so that when you identify that you've got someone who has misinterpreted things and that they don't share the same model as the previous people that you have interviewed, uh, you need to take a pause. You need to take a pause, you need to reassess, and, and you need to go back and, and go, how can I um, interact with this person in a way that is, is far more helpful to them and far more helpful to me? And so some of some of the techniques that uh, I've spoken to people that they do is that you slow down your speech. So, so I am very guilty of this. I speak extremely fast. And anyone with any uh, like extra cognitive load in their life, be it from trying to interpret English, from uh, not having a, a crap morning uh, on the bus ride in, uh, can struggle with the speed at which you, you are posing the questions. So just take a pause, take a breath, and slow down your speech. Uh, one of the things I do is smooth out my Australian accent. Uh, so sometimes I can get really ochre, Um and I'm from Queensland. So sometimes uh, I can sound like I'm from Queensland, which uh, being in Melbourne apparently is the thing. Uh, and so like taking pause to go, how am I enunciating the words? Um, how, am I, how am I phrasing the words? Uh, am I using idioms and colloquial terms that literally I, only I will know, uh, which again is something that I do and have to be mindful of in my own practice. But it's something that we all have to be mindful of around the, um, the context of the conversations that we're having. Uh, like, um, idioms that we think are really, really normal, are culturally normal, or socially normal to us within our group. Uh, and generally the people we're interviewing aren't in our group. Generally the people we're interviewing have their own customs and, and social norms and colloquial terms and idioms. And so it's really important that we drop those from our language to, um much more reflect how how our participant wants to uh, like engages best in our conversation um, and you have to be prepared to rephrase your questions again and again and again and again um, something that can happen is that the, the multiple times that you read the more times you rephrase a question the more frustrated you can get as a researcher um, and, and that frustration comes comes from uh, like can come from a, a number of places. One of them being the frustration that you yourself cannot communicate with another person. Um, and I, I think if you're in the moment where you're where you're like a bit frustrated or angry that, that someone doesn't understand you, that's when you need to take a breath. You need to take a breath. You need to try again, or you need to just um, you need to pivot or move on from that question. But you're going to have to rephrase things, and you're going to have to rephrase it multiple times. So maybe like. As, as a practice like go go to people and just um how like get them to explain the same concepts to you in three different ways and then you swap with each other and then you have to explain a concept to them in three different ways and three different levels to get used to just constantly rephrasing how you're asking these questions um, and then again, ask them to talk about their experience. So I mean, said, drop your research goals, which I, I I'm totally like uh, at a point where you're not really getting useful information, just drop them, move on to something else, um, and get them to talk about their experience again. So just get them to talk about their life, get them to talk about, uh, something that may be a little bit unrelated to the topic, but uh, maybe a great avenue to get them sharing their worldview or their, their world experience um and and focus in on what is the what is the smallest amount of context that i can establish with this person in this moment and then how can i build on that context so how can i go from here to here to here to here all the way to forever uh, be prepared for a second interview this is something that i don't think many of us really um take into consideration that if if this is a person that you want to speak to and they fit you, your demographics and you don't know their mental model that's completely different from where, when you walked into the room, what you thought, um, have a second interview with them. It's just, it's just as easy as that. Uh, once again, you can go over your screen any questions as well. All right, so, four, the Miss Now, the misrecruit is uh, very easy to spot. Uh, so their answers are completely different from the screening questions that you actually asked. Um, they struggle to understand your questions Differently from the misunderstander, they struggle to understand your questions because they don't seem to know what you're talking about. Um, but not just in context, they may not even know the service that you're actually using. Um, they may appear to be evasive. So when you're asking them questions, they're like dodging and weaving weaving away. Um, uh, they use industry jargon. So like they like people who use usability, usability studies or, um, uh, the language that we use when we're when we're testing people is pretty pretty good at identifying that they've been through something similar previously, um, and they may have a higher level of knowledge about what we're doing as as a practice than using the actual service. Uh, and they change the topic, so so misrecruits will often try and pivot away and and change the topic. And so you might be sitting there going like I'm a 37 year old like I recruited for a 37 year old working parent who uses our service. Once a week, uh, but in reality, you have got to market researcher like who got past your screener. I, I think this is this is super common, and it happens like everywhere. Now, there are a couple a couple ways that you can go about this. So Anna, Anna was saying that you can pivot your focus if you think uh, if you recruit for a regular user, but they're not a regular user, you can change some of your questions to start reflecting that. Uh, and I think that's a really good uh, a good point about adapting in the situation to the person that's in front of you. Um, so one of the strategies I would suggest using is, is going through the screen of questions again, and just establishing whether or not, whether or not they actually fit those boundaries and then get them to expand on those, those questions. So you get a bit more of an idea about each, um, each, each response. Um, you know, you have to do an assessment of, is this person, if they're not quite what I wanted, still going to give me relevant information now where researchers have a lot of access to different parts of the business. And so we generally know, Well, in my experience, we generally know that there are other studies going on or there are other, other pieces of work coming up that someone might be relevant for. Um, so just assessing whether this person doesn't fit this study, but they definitely fit one that I'm gonna to need to do in a month's time. Uh, I would just change the interview to be an open interview about that that topic that's coming up. Um, it can be really, really handy. I, I, I do that quite a lot because we get uh, we get misrecruits uh we get misrecruits about where they use our software so we just interview them about the other part of the software that they use in their specific context uh, and so you just interview about them something else and if they're, if they're really egregious you just end the interview uh so in one of in one of my interviews about this topic um uh someone told me that they had just finished an interview they walked the participant out into the reception area um said goodbye went away and did something came back 10 minutes later and saw the same person walk in to another user testing session and what they did is they were like that's super weird maybe they've like forgotten how to leave the building uh, so we went checked checked the log um and this person has signed in under two separate names with two separate mobile phone numbers uh and so he was like not on my watch and just walked into the room and said cool we're ending this session thank you so much walked the person out Uh, And then contacted the the research place and said, this person lied on the screener. So feel free to end a session. If it's not working, it doesn't need to be as dramatic as kicking the door down and like dragging the participant out and throwing them on the street and say, you've ruined half an hour. It might work, Uh, but it can just be like, this isn't working out. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it off you go. Um, That's another thing that we don't do enough as researchers. We don't just end sessions when we're like, this isn't, this isn't fine. Now, the next person I'm going to talk about is the not okay person. Uh, and there's a, a content warning on this. I'm going to briefly mention some like inappropriate behavior that, that happens in sessions. Uh, and you can spot like some of the ways that you can spot the, the not okay person is that you may have a sense that they're affected by drugs or alcohol. So sometimes they smell, sometimes they're, they're acting just really strange. Um, uh, they can use inappropriate language so i'm talking about uh like people who are being racist sexist homophobic transphobic um like things that are like denigrating other people like that language isn't okay uh and and in that situation you'll probably get hit with a lot of shock that this is happening in a session which is completely normal because you, you as a researcher aren't always anticipating that there's going to be dickheads in your session so like when they come in you're like, oh, this is going to be a lovely person, and then suddenly they start making really weird sexual innuendos, um, or or being like super racist, uh, and and you might be like taken aback by that. Um, and they can say they can be as extreme as to display inappropriate behavior. One of the stories that I heard was that uh, a participant like got extremely angry and punched the table in front of a researcher. Um, and, and what I say is that like in a research session. Prioritize the safety of yourself, prioritize the safety of your team, and then prioritize the safety of your participant in that order. You as a researcher do not have to put up with that bullshit. Um, And and I really encourage you to to know that it is okay that you can end a session whenever you want, that you don't have to listen to like, like behavior or language from people that is just completely inappropriate and irrelevant to your session. Um, and that you can end that session, you can walk out and you can prioritize yourself. As Steve was saying before, it can be really difficult to know that we need to prioritize ourselves, but I highly recommend you do that. Uh, So close the session, again, just close the session. It's not worth it. Um, If you can continue the session, you tell them that it's not okay. That behavior is not okay. Um, I'm happy to continue the session, but we can't have any of that um, happening. Um, and, And the only thing I'll say to like employers and team leaders is tell your team that they must prioritize their safety and mean it. So back them up. If someone, if someone's like, someone was really shit and I had to kick them out, you're like, fuck yeah, that's awesome. Like I'm fully with you. There will be zero repercussions, and we're going to get that person banned forever from all market research, which I have done. So. Uh, do that. I'm going to speed through, run out of time. Uh, so i type six is the people pleaser. So they're people that will probably like put themselves down, ask for continued val- validation throughout the session, give answers they think that you want to hear, um, uh, change their answers based on how you react to them, or give like really neutral actions. And they're probably sitting in that uh, that phase where like they're not trying to say how they feel. They're trying to figure out if they're giving you the right answer. Um, so Sarah says, you have to tell them you have a perspective that no one else has and get particular about what that perspective is and why you're interested in it. So it, it helps validate them uh, and it helps validate them and reconfirm that like there are no no wrong answers. Uh, and you, know, you can be lighthearted and casual and you can make it so it's not a researchy setting. It's like a much more conversational setting. Um, and when you're changing topics on a people pleaser, you have to be really gentle. You have to tell them that the, the information that they're giving you is excellent and that you really appreciate it um, and that you wanna move on to another topic. Uh, and the last set, last archetype that I'll talk about is the know-it-all. So these are people in the session that may feel uh, like they're coming across defensive or giving you abrupt answers that are really looking engaged. Uh, they speak as if everything is a fact. Um they don't want to speak about their journey. They don't know why you would be asking about their experience because you're giving them the facts right there. Um, and they constantly suggest features because they, they just want to focus on the feature and give you the, the feature that they want. Um, and the key thing is that uh, like there are, I guess like two types of, of nodals. Uh, there are the kind of nodals that think they're better than you, and there are the knowledge that just want to be really helpful and they're like, these are these are the facts. Um, and knowing which one you're coming up against is really important because there are different strategies for them. Um, Joe has a really great, great way of dealing with people who just have a lot of opinions is to just give them the physical question sheet and say, of these questions, which one's the most important? Uh, And and what you do in that situation is that you you stop trying to control them and you give the control of the conversation back over to them and they get to tell you what the most important thing is. And generally, that changes the dynamic enough that they'll want to continue asking, like continue participating in the conversation with you. Um, Also, just agree with what they say. Like, don't don't try and say like you're not smart. Sometimes you're like, sometimes you want to go, oh, that's not that's not right. But really, just got to be like, oh my god, I didn't know that. I'm such a novice. I don't understand these concepts. You're so smart. Um, and and play it like uh, like giving them that feedback can usually make them go, cool. I am smart. Let me tell you some more things. Um, uh, but it was like I really love the idea of giving them a question sheet and getting them to answer. All right. So there yeah, are the archetypes. Uh, I know that was a wild ride at the end there, but so uh, I can go into more detail <laughs> I can go into more detail uh, a bit later on. Thanks so much, Steve. I really appreciate it.
0: Um, I, I found myself nodding along pretty much all the way through there and, and just uh, thinking about all of the times in all of the research sessions when I've come across every one of those archetypes. Um, Good advice. We've got, um, in the Q&A, there are a a bunch of comments in there, which I'll I'll leave for for others to read. There are a couple of questions, and we'll we'll take a couple of them quickly. One's from Tristan, who's asked, have you ever used those archetypes in putting forward screening questions where you effectively screen for particular types of um, archetype?
1: Not intentionally at all. So this is the first time that I was thinking that there are these groups of people, but I think that um, that's a great way of, of probably dealing and making sure you get like a good cross-section. So I, I love that suggestion, Tristan. I'll probably take that on
0: board, Um <laughs> an, using it. Yeah, a, a, another question from Amanda, thinking about video interviews, and a lot of us are going to be conducting interviews like this. Um, in the coming weeks and months and will probably become part of our standard interviewing toolkit and research toolkit over the, the coming years. Some of these strategies that you're putting forward work best in person. Um, some of them don't work quite so well across a video link where you have delays, where it can be difficult to pick that moment to interrupt. Any thoughts on how you might adapt some of these strategies to this kind of remote um, style of interviewing, doing things over video in particular, I think.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think sometimes the delay works really well because you can you can just start talking and then that'll, like the physical interruption uh, or the audible interruption works really well over video because you can just start talking and then it cuts them off and then there's like this awkward bit where you're trying to re-establish the conversation. Yep. So, so I, I would say like like some of these strategies you can pick up and use use in in the sessions, uh, like in video sessions. Uh, and again, I think this is a like, uh, all of our experience has been pretty much in person and most people's experience has been in person. So it's yeah. it's how can we adapt these, these strategies to the new situation? But I, I, I actually think that like video produces its own set of constraints that are also really interesting as a facilitator that you can take advantage of. Um, and I actually find people are more conscientious when they're talking to you over the video um, than
0: they are when they're talking to you in your life. Yeah that's great. Um, Ron, there are a, a couple more questions uh, coming through, but maybe you can uh, take a look at those and answer them in the um, in that panel. But thank you very much for that uh, really insightful and therapeutic look at um, that that did feel like a bit of a therapy session for me as as Ron was talking so thank you very much.
1: No worries. anytime. <laughs>